and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Yeah, thank you for coming back again. Sorry we're late. Yes, sorry about this. Sorry that it's a couple of days late, but hopefully you guys will forgive us. They've forgiven us for worse, haven't they, Mark? Oh, totally, yeah. Um, So, uh, before we get cracking, we'd just like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. Uh, So I'm just going to read these off my phone. So we have Ellie Garnett, Jamie Ebsery, Eleanie Hall, Georgie Walker, Lisa Dunstan, Emily Ballinger, Neil Martin, Lauren Walker, Mia White, Grace Wilson, Hayley Parker, Shannon Cummings, Natalie Virtue, Rebecca Yin and Kristen Shaw. Wow. I mean, that is a lot of you uh thank you so much much, guys yeah that makes such a huge difference to us and um yeah if you would like to join these people and support us through patreon and gain access to loads of fun stuff that we have over there then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast We'd also like to say a massive thank you to Andy who has upped his pledge and also a happy birthday because I think the day this episode comes out, the next day is his birthday. So that's exciting. So thank you so much for amending your pledge and also happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, Andy. Long time listener of the show. Yeah, he's. I'm pretty sure he's been around since day dot, which is quite cool. So thank you. And this week, my case is a listener suggestion and actually from a friend of the show who's been around since the beginning as well. So thank you for still listening to the show, Rick Walters. Um, Also, his other half is Lindsay, who makes our T-shirts for the merch store. I thought you'd like that little link. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, really glad to be able to do a case that he requested. And we're returning to a subject that I've covered on numerous occasions, a miscarriage of justice. It's not a fire. I thought you might think it was a fire, but... I was going to say, yeah, as soon as you said it was uh, something that you've done many times before, I thought we're on for a... Uh, a rotten episode of people trying to escape from a burning building which we've we've done loads of times and it's harrowing but uh no this is um this will be interesting a miscarriage of justice it always makes me really mad so uh, it'd be interesting to see how this one ends yeah and actually it's possibly one of the biggest cases of a miscarriage of justice in the uk because five men were put on trial for a murder they didn't commit um so i think it is possibly the biggest that's what they all say <laughs> And I think it's the idea of being wrongly accused of a crime that makes me feel, I think we've discussed this on numerous occasions, that the death penalty is wrong because honestly, sometimes I look at people and I think the death penalty is the only option. For example, we were talking on the Facebook group recently about Chris Watts, but people can be set up, witnesses can lie and confessions can be false. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, we've talked about it loads. We've probably not talked about the death penalty for... Uh, I don't know for quite a while on on the podcast, but yeah, my my opinion is is the same. I I just it's something I just can't abide. So before we look at what happened to the five men mentioned about today's case, I'm going to be taking you through what happened to 20 year old Lynette White in Cardiff in 1988. Because this episode is not just about the men who were wrongly convicted. This episode begins with the brutal murder of a sex worker and a woman who deserved real justice, a woman who deserves to be remembered. Lynette had a tough childhood and a really difficult life. When her parents split up when she was only 18 months old and her mum had left her in Cardiff with her dad, um, she kind of had this really tough childhood where she didn't really have both her parents there. She lived with her grandma on her dad's side, as well as some aunties. Um, One of her aunties she was really, really close to, as well as her grandmother, and this was Auntie Lynn. And then her dad remarried. And at the age of 12, her world came crashing down entirely when her nana died and she was only 56 and so this seems to have kind of left her really vulnerable to what most people have to deal with but will get through in their in their teenage years and it just feels like there's so many little things that happened that actually they were all just became this one massive catalyst for her. I suppose if if her mom and dad weren't present in her childhood then um, she's been rejected by them and then then in a way she's rejected by her nan when her nan dies that would maybe feel like a 
a sense of rejection for her or abandonment at least, I, I guess. Yeah, that's it. And this Auntie Lynn, she was still really, really close to, which is wonderful, but sadly didn't really, she wasn't able to kind of change anything. Um, and reading articles and interviews with her, it seems to be something that she's so sad about. So by the age of 14, Lynette had left school without any qualifications and she was a sex worker on the streets of Cardiff. She was an incredibly hardworking young woman. So people had described her as the first girl out at lunchtime and the last one left at night. And she would even work on Christmas Day. And her hard work seemed to pay off for her. She would earn about £100 a night. She had friends. They described her as pretty and popular. Those who knew her said she was a popular person, but quiet. She was kind. She was friendly and unfailingly polite. But please don't think I'm describing that this is a life she would have chosen. Yes, she was a hardworking woman, but this wasn't the life she'd wanted. And she spoke to the BBC as part of an investigation into child prostitution, at what, which point she told the journalist that at the age of 14, she had been drugged taken to Bristol by a gang of men who forced her into prostitution. She had made her way back to Cardiff, but had then found herself trapped in what she described as a continual spiral. And I just thought that was so sad that people's understanding of her was this hardworking person who was first out, last in. And actually, this wasn't something she'd chosen to do whatsoever herself. But I I don't think many sex workers choose to do it. I I think they're backed into a corner so it could be drug addiction or they could be trafficked or forced into it by a coercively controlling boyfriend or something so Mm. so I don't think many people would choose it but um but yeah it's just really sad I mean classic fucking Bristol of course she was drugged and taken to Bristol um but yeah it's um at 14 that's brutal isn't it I mean it's brutal at any age but at 14, the damage that's going to have done to her psychologically, it's not its not worth thinking about. Yeah. And her auntie Lynn would cook Sunday roasts for Lynette and she tried to arrange surprise birthday parties, kind of really hoping desperately to boost her self-worth and try and help Lynette keep her life on track. She was horrified when she eventually found out, but sadly there was nothing that she could really do to keep Lynette from leading the life that she was leading. And there's a really sad quote from her where she said, I've no idea at what point she went down that path. I lie awake at night thinking, could I have stopped her? If I'd known, could I have done something? But I really don't think I could have done anything to help. She just wanted to be loved. Which then what you said before about potentially feeling like she'd been abandoned, Mm. that really does tie in. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? That that's, um, that's the only sort of avenue that she can go down in order to be validated and to be loved is through sex with desperate men in the back of a car in some on some industrial estate or whatever that that's tragic it's just it really makes me sad and with writing the book at the moment that I'm writing I've come across a number of stories of women who actually have you know they've chosen to potentially do something because they want to keep some control over their life and that sort of thing but it just doesn't feel like that with Lynette at all By 1988, she was working every day and she was paying for her boyfriend, Stephen Miller's cocaine addiction. So Miller, who was also nicknamed Pineapple because of his hairstyle, was also her pimp. And he would take at least £60 from Lynette every day. This was his only source of income. Um, Although some people said that potentially he was also dealing drugs or selling weed. But in general... The pair lived together. Every day he'd take her to Riverside to go and work and then he'd meet up with her later and collect her earnings. And I just thought, she's earning £100 and you're taking 60 of that. And that was like, that would have been a decent amount back in 88. That's probably the equivalent of of like 250 quid a day now. So he he clearly had a serious cocaine addiction as well because he's he's clearly spending like 150 quid a day on it. And this is what makes me really cross with stories like Lynette's quite often it's the men that are involved because if a woman chooses or feels that that's the only option that she has to make a living for herself as a sex worker, that is her decision. And whilst it is inherently still very unsafe for a lot of women, it's the choice to make. But men like Miller and the numerous other pimps that I keep researching, they just make me so mad because they're happy to send these women that they call their girlfriends out onto the streets. And 
I don't know. That really frustrates me. I do. I do get it. It's totally wrong, but you're not going to see it the other way round because there's just not a demand from women for meaningless sex with men. So it's only ever going to be this role play out of man controlling woman and sending her out to be a sex worker. That is really true. Which, is, of course, is awful and it's wrong, and they don't have to do that. But you won't ever see it reversed. That is such a good point. Actually, I hadn't thought of that because. I was kind of thinking, do they actually really care for their girlfriends at all? Like, I don't, I I just can't see that they actually do. I hope I'm wrong, but to me, it doesn't feel like they actually give a shit. It's, it's, so. not, it's not a normal relationship, is it? It's coercively controlling, abusive, probably, in many different ways. Um, she's just a cash cow to him. That's how it feels to me. Although the Crime Watch reconstruction did show him in quite a a kind sort of light, which is something, I suppose. They weren't they weren't too harsh on him, which yeah. is quite nice, which I'll talk about later. But And I suppose um, this isn't yeah. really his story, is it? Because I'm guessing he's not responsible for what happened to Lynette. But he is involved in the story, but yeah. The interviews that Lynette had done for that BBC documentary were actually only a few weeks before she was murdered as well. And the journalist described her as probably the most visible sex worker in Cardiff at the time. And then she just kind of went missing for a few days. So the reason for not being in touch with her boyfriend or any of her friends isn't known 100%, but she was due to be called as a witness for two court cases. So some people kind of thought at the time that maybe she was lying low to avoid having to give evidence at these. Um, One trial was an alleged attempted murder and the other was an allegation of someone trying to procure the sexual services of a 13-year-old girl So both incredibly in-depth cases that would have been quite dangerous to be a witness for. The police began to search for Lynette and a judge put out a warrant for her arrest just to make sure that she would definitely attend that first trial. And that was due to begin on the 15th of February. Earlier that month, Lynette's friend, who was also a sex worker, had loaned Lynette the keys to a flat for her to use for some clients. And I'm pretty sure Leanne, who loaned her the keys and flat, owned the place, or at least she was like the official renter. But basically, it's been described as Leanne's flat. And on the 14th of February, she couldn't get into the flat after Lynette had disappeared. But obviously, without the keys, she couldn't. So she asked her taxi driver friend, Eddie, Um, to go and take her there and she got another occupant to drop some keys down from their window for the main door of the building but when they got inside her flat door was still locked and there was no sign of Lynette and so Leanne was really worried and she was kind of I guess expecting just to find her friend hiding out not wanting to go to court so she and the taxi driver friend headed over to the police station and filed a missing persons report the police then returned to the flat with the pair there were three PCs just expecting to kind of serve this warrant on Lynette for the next day. The police headed indoors and by now it was gone 9pm and it was dark. Leanne and Eddie were waiting outside and the police headed up to the first floor landing. They tried the door handle and when it wouldn't open they gave it a forceful kick that broke open the door. The prepayment meter card had run out ages ago so the lights weren't working. The doors along the corridor were shut and so they went through methodically, first checking the kitchen, then into the bathroom, shining their torches along the way. When their light kind of picked up blood on one door, they then headed into that room. And sadly for the pair waiting outside, who were friends of Lynette's, the police just had no good news to report from inside. Lynette was found lying on her back in the bedroom, on the floor. Her throat had been cut from her right ear across the front and around the left side of her neck. And it had even exposed the bones of the spine. Oh my God, Jesus, Bethan. You painted that such so vividly anyway, and then you because I was thinking with um with a sort of laceration like that on the front of the neck, sort of across the whole of the front of the neck, it's it's devastating wound that is, um it it's almost like a half decapitation essentially. So um I'm not surprised actually that you could see the spine, but that's mm-hmm. yeah that's vile. And Lynette was still clothed when she was found, although one of her shoes was off. And the leather jacket that she had been wearing was kind of pulled back to front across her body. There were multiple stab wounds to her chest and her breasts and other wounds to her face, her stomach, her arms, her wrists and her inner thighs, as well as defensive wounds on her hands. 
The pathologist who conducted Lynette's autopsy described it as a mutilating attack with sexual overtones and identified a total of 69 wounds. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's frenzied, isn't Mm -hmm. it? And although she had been stabbed seven times into the heart, he did conclude that it was that throat injury that had killed her. Lynette was wearing two T-shirts and the pathologist said that one was absolutely lacerated and looked like a colander. And he said he believed that she had died between midnight and 4am and that the murder weapon was at least five inches long. And then due to Lynette's watch stopping, the police were able to narrow down their estimation of her time of death. Unsurprisingly, the forensics team found 150 different sets of finger and palm prints in the flat. They also found sperm in Lynette and her underwear, which pathologists determined had been deposited there within six hours of her death. And some of the blood found on Lynette's clothing, including her exposed sock, was then found to be from a male with an AB blood type. So the police immediately set out to appeal for witnesses. Several people independently described a white male, approximately 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, aged his mid-30s with dark hair in a dishevelled appearance in what they had seen as and described as a distressed state, crouched in a doorway near the flat. Um, and he was basically seen in the early hours of the 14th with blood on his clothes and he seemed to have cut his hand. And an e-fit of this suspect was then shown on the 17th of March on Crime Watch. So... The head of South Wales Police CID, Detective Chief Superintendent John Williams, said he is very distinctive. He's got dark brown, greasy hair with lightning towards the front of it. He's about 35 to 40 years of age, between 5 foot 8 and 6 foot tall. And they described the murder as a vicious, frenzied, sadistic attack. So I thought it was quite amazing that they already had this police sketch and already quite a lot of information, really, quite quickly. Yeah, I was just thinking that because um, that is really detailed, actually. They've narrowed down the age range to within five years. Um, they've got height and, yeah, just I don't know um, who, who was res- responsible for Lynette's murder, but it sounds like it's definitely this guy, whoever the hell he is. It's got to be. It's too much of a coincidence. Mm. I'm sure I've seen this on Crime Watch as well because obviously I'm – I'm binging my way through the back catalogue of Vintage Crime Watch, yeah. And even like Lynette's boyfriend, the pineapple guy, that rings a bell. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I, I kind of vaguely know about this case, but I can't remember it. So the police naturally had to look at all avenues for investigations. Um, obviously, that's understandable. And they began with the people that Lynette had been due to testify against. But the discovery of the blood on her body and her clothes eliminated them. Um, They wondered whether Lynette had been killed by a customer and they also spoke to Stephen Miller, her boyfriend, which obviously feels quite normal, but he was released without charge and the police announced that he was ruled out of their investigations after he gave a statement on the 15th of February. Um, When he was first taken in by the police for questioning, he was still wearing the clothes he'd been wearing at the time of Lynette being murdered. He had no blood on him. His car was forensically examined, no results. His blood didn't match that found on her clothes. He had an alibi. So there was lots of things with that and they kind of discounted him quite quickly. And there were a list of people who were in the local area who had criminal backgrounds that the police wanted to look at closely as well. So one guy was a man known as Mr X. His identity has never been publicly revealed and he was a convicted sex offender and paedophile who lived within 20 minutes driving distance from the flat that Lynette was found at. He was known to visit Cardiff, he'd used sex workers, had a history of mental illness and had been classified as a psychopath and couldn't account for his movements on the night of the murder. He also had the blood type AB. He was their key suspect, especially when he admitted to having paid for Lynette's services before, but eventually DNA analysis actually eliminated him from the investigation. Oh, up how until frustrating that point, must that have been? It, they must have just thought they had their man. Yeah, it was like his name was written all over it. And then, yeah, I suppose it, you can't really argue with the science if his DNA doesn't match. It's not him. But now we kind of begin to scratch the surface of how dodgy this investigation ended up being. So there were two men who knew Mr. X, men called Atkins and Gromick. And they had already been spoken to by the police. They'd given alibis for their whereabouts at the time. But due to them both being gay men, this being 1988, and having previous convictions as petty criminals, 
The police saw them as susceptible to police pressure, which is a quote from the police. And ultimately, Atkins changed his statement, admitted to being the killer, said Gromick was also the killer. And then the statement had four different accounts in it. So it wasn't treated seriously. He said Gromick had gone to the flat to have sex with Lynette and heard a, and he heard a scream and saw Gromick exiting the flat covered in blood. Atkins said he'd seen Lynette himself in a pub and went to the flat to have sex with her. And then he'd wrestled her to the floor, sat astride her and stabbed her. And it's just awful how the police can encourage someone to change their story like that these guys had alibis and they'd already been discounted by the police but also like yeah yeah they might have been susceptible to pressure back in 1988 from the police but like to the point where they're going to admit to a brutal frenzied murder and also it just really doesn't fit the profile because this is like the sexual over overtones of uh, of the attack and the murder and that's not going to be yeah, like, as a, at their hands why would either of gay. them gone to have sex with Lynette yeah yeah and they basically lived I think it was upstairs or across from the flat it was basically they were close proximity and well we can easily influence them it's horrendous isn't it I've and I've I've heard some I think I've talked about it. I did a bit of a blog post on Patreon about things that I'd learnt from watching some of those old episodes of Crime Watch and one of them was just that overt homophobia and racism in the police force uh back in the eighties and, and possibly even the nineties as well. Um but but it was. It was just there was obviously a lot of pressure on the police to to tie cases up and and they would just go after vulnerable people um and and stitch them up for it I, I don't think it happens anywhere as much as it did back in the 80s now um on the whole i think the police do a great job but back then it was a different story i think and you have literally in that sentence come up with the three vulnerabilities for the people who we will be going on to discuss shortly literally so 10 months after the murder the police arrested a number of men on suspicion of Lynette's murder, and they charged five of them. No DNA evidence linked them to the scene. Some of them had alibis that had been corroborated. None of them matched the description of the man seen by witnesses outside of Lynette's flat, and all five men were black. So not only have we seen the homophobia that you described, but also the racist side of things is coming out straight away as well. And also... The the description of the guy that was on, on the steps outside the flat covered in blood, who was a white guy, it's clearly that guy and he's not black. So how they think they're going to fit these five black men up is beyond me, but I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to see. Don't you on worry, I'll explain. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Yeah. So before we discuss this second part to today's case, we are really excited to tell our listeners about this week's sponsor, which is Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited. And this is the second time Beautiful Jewellery Company have sponsored the show and we are genuinely excited to tell you about them again. This is a small family run business and they were established in 2011 by a husband and wife duo. With offerings in all aspects of jewellery design as well as jewellery parts, loose stones, repairs and bespoke one-off design pieces, they specialise in high quality British made jewellery from a UK business. And if you tuned into Adam's Q&A last week, you may have spotted my pendant. Honestly, Pete, so many people have talked about it. You've had so many compliments um, about that specific pendant, that piece from Beautiful Jewellery Company, haven't you? I know, I really love it myself as well. I haven't really changed my jewellery. I've just been wearing it since. So Beautiful Jewellery Company work with a variety of metals such as yellow, white and rose gold, as well as silver and platinum. So there really is something for everyone. Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited offer a wide range of products which can be made with the customer specifications and to their own design and in their choice of gemstones and diamonds. And I personally am really excited about a bracelet that Dan has made for me for my best friend who's getting married. Um, luckily, now we've recorded this, she has had her gift because it's something so she can wear this bracelet from her bridesmaids. Um, because we can't all be there for the wedding, which absolutely sucks so much. So we wanted to get her something and he made this one unique piece for her, which I just think it's just so wonderful to know that Vicky's bracelet is unique to her. Um, so yeah, really excited about That's, that. Um, 
you're such a good friend, Beth, and I'd ne- I just don't really have many friends anyway, so I've forgotten how to be a good friend. But um, but that is just classic you that you would do something like that and get get a one off. I piece. can't even um, take credit for that, by the way. That was like a full. That was a bridesmaid's joint decision to get her something. So I um I bought my mom a um it was a pendant with a the outline of a butterfly um on it and it's in silver and that that wasn't a one-off but it's like limited so there aren't that many of those uh so i bought her that they've got so much on their website it's all different price points as well um so do have a look at it there is just a whole wealth of of different pieces and as bethan said they can make bespoke pieces as well but there's just so much on there so do have a look at it We have a special offer for listeners of Seeing Red. So an amazing timeless discount code of RED10, so R-E-D and then the numbers one zero, which is active on the site. And you get a discount of 10% off your entire basket and there is no minimum order amount. The great thing is that all orders are available with worldwide shipping. The website is ever changing and new products are added daily with special offers and unique rarities on offer throughout the year. So what are you waiting for? So head over to beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and don't forget to use code RED10, that's R-E-D and the number 10, for 10% off your entire order. So back to the case. And the five men who had been arrested were Stephen and Tony Miller, Youssef Abdullahi, Ronnie Akti, Rashid Omar and Martin Tucker on the 7th of December 1988, and John Akti and Tony Paris on the 9th. And on the 11th of December, the police charged John Acti, Tony Paris, Stephen Miller, Ronnie Acti and Youssef Abdullahi. You may remember me saying that Stephen Miller had given his statement and had been cleared by the police. Well, they returned to this man who had a mental age of an 11 year old. And over a period of four days, they interviewed him on 19 occasions for a total of 13 hours. They denied him a solicitor at first. And after denying the murder 307 times, he eventually confessed. Wow. And that Stephen Miller was Lynette's boyfriend. Pineapple, yeah. Yeah, pineapple. So he'd initially told the police that he'd argued with his girlfriend because he didn't like that she was a sex worker. He told the police he was not her pimp. He told them he'd always tried to convince her not to go back to the world that she knew and the work that she knew, but she just wouldn't be persuaded to stop. He had broken down when he was told that she'd been found dead, as he had actually been searching for her since their argument five days prior. And when the police had asked him if he'd be willing to provide DNA samples, his clothing, etc., he said, anything you want, you can take anything you want. And then he spent the next few months in a daze. He returned to London and stayed with his mum, and he was just waiting for information from the police. But then suddenly he was arrested and he was put through what has been described as 19 interviews over five days of psychological torture. In fact, the tapes of Miller's confession to the police showed officers bullying and beating him over the head verbally. The police kind of did like a good cop, bad cop routine till he cracked. So they had this hostile and intimidating manner and they made it clear to Stephen that they would continue to question him until he got it right. And the right answer was to confess and bring the others down with him. So the police had other witnesses, said with inverted commas, for example, Leanne, who had raised the alarm. So the police thought that she was hiding something. She was incredibly vulnerable. So the third kind of thing that you mentioned when you were talking, the the homophobia, the racism, and then taking advantage of vulnerable people. She was a single parent. She was a lesbian. She was a drug addict, and she was a sex worker. The police began to interview her on a daily basis. They were intimidating her. They got in the way of the people that she lived with. They made it really, really tough for her to just get about her normal life. On the 19th of May, 1988, while she was drunk, Leanne had named Stephen Miller and Yousef Yousef Abdullahi as the killers in front of several other sex workers. Although later she said she'd named those two men because she was so drunk. It was a false accusation. She'd heard those names from the police who'd interviewed her earlier that day. Um, so she just kind of was, it was like drunken ramblings. There was a, Which we've all done. Yeah, and especially if they've kind of been naming people in your brain, you might then start to think, well, the police said it was these people. I'll just talk about it later. I mean, who hasn't got drunk and then started accusing people of being murderers? <laughs> Standard Friday night for you, Bethan. <laughs> What can I say? 
And there was a woman called Violet Periam who knew many police officers. And the day after Mr. Rex was cleared of any involvement, she gave a statement to the police that she had been driving home from work on the night of the murder and had seen at 1.30am four excited black males outside the building arguing and gesticulating. She said she recognised two of them as John Acti, Sir Leanne's boyfriend's cousin, and Rashid Omar, who had given a statement previously. And amazingly, this new statement gave the police this new line of inquiry. What a happy surprise for them after they'd cleared Mr. X. There was a woman called Angela Fesalia and she lived in a cl- flat close to the murder scene. In fact, it had a totally unrestricted view of the front of the flat that, um, that Lynette had been killed in. And she was described later as one of the most vulnerable members of Cardiff society, having an IQ of just 55. The police interviewed her on the 17th of November and insisted that she was somehow connected to the crime and she began to give statements. So she said Stephen Miller had visited her at 1am on the 14th of February looking for Lynette. She gave another statement claiming that she saw Stephen Miller, Ronnie Acti, Youssef Abdullahi and Tony Paris and other men outside the flat. She claimed to have heard screams from inside the flat she claimed that Ronnie Acti was talking up at someone at the window of Gromick's flat and being let into the building. And it was on this same day that then Gromick and Atkins gave new statements to the police saying that they'd also seen a group of men outside the flat. They also named Ronnie Acti and Yusef Abdullahi. Gromick also said that he'd opened the door of the building to let Ronnie Acti in. Um, and then both he and Atkins then claimed that they too had heard screams that night, which was a complete contradiction to their initial statements. This is so messy as well, isn't mm-hmm. it? There's so many people involved. We've got information coming to light at different times, witnesses saying that they've seen certain things that they've not disclosed previously. It's all just so messy and so bullshitty. Yeah, it's, it literally is. And I think even if you're trying to lie about a, your story, you'd at least have one story you'd stick to. Yeah. This woman, bless her, she's just trying to find the right thing that the police are then going to say, oh, you got it right that time. She's just she's just trying to say the right thing. It's probably the only time that she's kind of been validated and, and rewarded and thanked for um, saying something or doing something. So they're probably encouraging her in that way to to say certain things. Yeah, and it's going to get even more confusing and messy as well because... Angela Salia gave a new statement in which she said that she and Leanne had been together on the night of the murder. They'd gone to the flat after hearing screams. Leanne, Gromick and Atkins all declared and decided independently to go to the police that day and give new accounts of the murder. So Leanne said on hearing the screams, she'd gone to the flat and found Lynette was dead inside. In the room were Miller, Abdullahi, Ronnie Acti, Tony Miller, Stephen Miller's brother, and then an unnamed man. Gromick and Atkins gave statements which corroborated this. Then the police discovered on the 10th of December that Angela's blood type was AB. So they interviewed her again and basically threatened her with this. And she gave a new version of events, saying she and Leanne had been present when when Lynette was murdered and had even taken part in the killing. So she then named Stephen and Tony Miller, Ronnie and John Acti, Tony Paris and Yusef Abdullahi as the other killers and said Leanne had actually been responsible for cutting Lynette's throat. And then Leanne gave a new statement in which she named the same five men as the killers. And she said she and Angela had been forced to cut one of Lynette's wrists to ensure that they'd keep quiet. It's just such an absolute, like you said, just bullshit. But also it's not, I, you can't fully blame the police for this. The police are taking advantage of some vulnerable people in that community to try and get the narrative how they want it to be but equally I think like a lot of these people are just really messing up the investigation and if I was a police officer or a detective in that force investigating Lynette's murder I'd just be tearing my hair out and popping headache pills because you're just not getting anywhere they're just making it so complicated. I think though um, what you need to remember is the police were orchestrating this 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 isn't that the police have randomly got people turning up. They are going to people's houses on a daily basis and badgering them until their story changes and it, it works that day. Yeah, these these news stories where they're naming the five men specifically, 
those names have been told to them to to make sure that they get their five men. And also, we don't know, maybe they were being bribed by the police. The police might have been bunging them money to say what they wanted them to say. Yeah, I I don't think that that's the case. That It's never been proven. It could well be the case. But yeah, there's there's a lot going on that the police were doing here. So who were these men that had now been arrested for the murder of Lynette? So Stephen Miller, um, an easy target, now a confessed killer. And Stephen had named the others. Yusef Abdullahi had originally been questioned as part of the routine door-to-door inquiries. But at the time of the murder, he was at work on board a ship eight to ten miles away in Barry Docks. Despite 13 people confirming this, but the police basically claimed that he had somehow been able to leave the boat, take part in the murder and return without anybody knowing. And here's where the story takes a turn for him, because his partner was having an affair with a South Wales police officer named Smith, whose common law brother-in-law was a police informant called Williams. And he began passing information to the police in March 1988. Much of it was quite unreliable including a claim that Lynette had been stabbed in a club before being moved to the flat. Initially, he claimed that Yusef knew the identity of the killer and was concealing this information. But then as it went on, he then began to implicate him more directly with the murder. Um, So he was the one who claimed that Abdullahi had managed to leave work on the night of the murder without any of his colleagues being aware. And and just when you thought it couldn't get any messier, it just did. Yeah, so his... There's these affairs going on as well. Tony Paris had no history of violence, had never been to prison, was known for avoiding confrontation and even fainting at the sight of his own blood. He did have three previous convictions, so two fines for shoplifting and one for driving without insurance. And he was well known as a shoplifter. So he would steal on request and people called him pockets. But he wasn't a brutal sexual murderer whatsoever. John Acty was not a fan of the police, but he had filled in the questionnaire that they provided as part of the door-to-door investigations. He was suspicious of the police because he'd been arrested for criminal damage at the age of 19 in a nightclub that he says he's never even been to. And after being taken to Cardiff Central Police Station, he was badly beaten by a group of 11 police officers. He was then subsequently charged with assaulting them. After giving his side of the story, all of the charges were dismissed against him by a magistrate. So you can understand why he would be, um, you know, suspicious. He also wasn't perfect. By the age of 22, he'd served a three-year term for robbery, a 12-month jail sentence for possession of cannabis. And he often ran up against the police because he aggravated them. He refused to bow down to them. He organised illegal all-night blues house parties um, at various locations where he sold drinks. And he had a reputation but actually, this this hard man front kind of hit a softer side. And he said that the brutal murder of Lynette had horrified him. His priority at that point was then the welfare of his wife and his two daughters, who were four years old and a newborn. I loved the idea of these illegal all-night blues house parties, by the way, just a little aside. I was just thinking, what I mean, what would that kind of involve? It's like a rave, but with different sort of music and Yeah, mixing. just chilling and drinking. And different drugs, yeah, just smoking weed, listening to blues. I mean, why have the police got a problem with that? I know. So John Acty basically told the BBC about the day that he was arrested. The police had arrived at his house, and at first he thought it was a bit of a joke. But then the police told him that if, they, if he didn't go with them, they were going to call back up. And he didn't want his wife and kids having to deal with that. So he said, go, I'll get in the car. So I'll go get dressed and I'll get in the car. And then they started the first interview and he literally turned to his solicitor and said, they're fitting me up. There was a group of other people from the area, but they didn't hang out together. They didn't really know each other. One of the people was his cousin, but they weren't that close. And then two days later, they were handcuffed and led from their cells and lined up. He said that basically there were like 30 or 40 police officers and they told him that you, you're charged with the murder. And he was just literally like, what the hell? Like, I'm not a murderer. I can't believe this. And he just said like, it was just so crazy. Like they had all these statements, but he didn't even know the people that were being talked about. So the five of them were charged on the 11th of December and they were later to become known as the Cardiff Five. 
The first trial began on the 17th of October in 1989 in Swansea's Crown Court, but after five months in the trial's final few days, the judge died of a heart attack and it was abandoned. Three months later, in May 1990, the second trial then got underway. God, that's mad. One of the things that you just really don't expect to happen. I know. So the police presented to the court a scenario in which all five men had somehow come together and made their way to the flat where they took it in turns to stab Lynette to death. The court was told that Lynette had been killed to be an example and that it was a drug deal. There were four key witnesses at the trial. So there was Leanne, Angela, Mark Gromick and Paul Atkins. This eyewitness evidence was described as... As flimsy as it was fantastical, their testimony was riddled with contradictions, lies and discrepancies. And actually, the accounts were so chaotic, nobody could make it clear who was actually at the murder scene. The judge even told the jury that these were unsatisfactory witnesses whose police statements were also admittedly studded with lies. All of the men who they had been accused had alibis for the night. There was no shred of forensic evidence linking any of them to the flat Yet somehow, Stephen Miller, Tony Paris and Yusef Abdullahi were all found guilty. At the time, it was the longest trial in British history and the three of them were sentenced to life imprisonment. How the fuck does that happen after a trial where even the judge is saying these aren't good witnesses? That just gives me no faith in the British public sitting on a jury, hearing that and being directed by the judge and then returning a guilty verdict on people that clearly weren't responsible for this murder. Yeah. It worries me because I think if I, I don't know, any of us could be in that situation um, where we're falsely accused of something and, and go down for it when we've not done anything. So the cousins, Ronnie Acty and John Acty, were unanimously found not guilty and John broke down outside court pleading, they're innocent, they're innocent. He was asked how he felt and he just cried and said, I am bitter and I am broke. So like those two have literally just been found innocent and they can't even be happy about that. They can't even, not celebrate is even the wrong word, but they can't even be relieved because they know that the other three men are also innocent. Yeah, and and that there, but for the grace of God, goes them, because it could have easily been them being sent down, and the other three stood outside court saying that they were innocent. Exactly. In early 1991, a number of journalists began to question the convictions, and in May 1991, Tony and Yusef were granted leave to appeal the convictions, although Stephen Miller was not. And an investigative journalist called Satish Sakar tracked down two witnesses who were not called at the trial who could provide an alibi for Stephen's whereabouts at the time of his murder. So Stephen asked Satish Sakar if he would organise a new legal team to prepare his appeal. And there was a public campaign by the friends and families of the three men to overturn the convictions as well. This was gaining momentum. Further journalists started to get hold of the story. And finally, their appeals were heard. By now, it was December 1992, and after four days of evidence, the men had all of their convictions declared unsafe and unsatisfactory, and they were all released. The judge said that the police had bullied and hectored Stephen during a travesty of an interview, and that, short of physical violence, it is hard to conceive of a more hostile and intimidating approach by officers to a suspect – And the judge actually ordered copies of the recording of his interviews to be sent to the director of public prosecutions and the chairman of the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice as what he described as an example of what we hope we will never hear again in this court. Well, I hope I hope those police officers that were responsible for that were held accountable. Oh, just wait. Oh, good. Okay. Normally we don't hear anything. Yeah. So whilst and they get away with it. This is the thing. It was a time for celebration, but. The men were so bitter. It was so bittersweet. They they were really upset by things that had happened. So Tony Paris's dad had died while he was in prison, hadn't managed to see his son released. And then South Wales Police announced that they would not reopen the investigation and no disciplinary action would be taken against any officer involved. Um, and basically this meant that there were so many rumours that actually the men were still guilty. Yeah, like the public didn't know what to think. They were kind of like, well, maybe they've been released on a technicality, but they were still guilty. Because that, that's like what bothers me. I know people have got their own opinions of the murder of Giordando, but Barry George was essentially released 
but the police said uh, we're not going to be pursuing anybody else. So basically, they're saying even though he's you know technically an innocent man, uh, we still believe that he did it. So there's this cloud of suspicion hanging over him, which I think is really unfair. Exactly, and it's kind of s- similar with this, isn't it? Exactly. I can't remember which one of the the three it was, but um, one of them would get valentine's day cards that would say things like you're a murderer because she was killed at valentine's day um i believe it was stephen miller but i can't remember for definite and i just think people still didn't know for sure why these guys and i also don't think it was necessarily like innocent it was you're not guilty so similar like you said you're not found guilty that's that's not the same Lynette's father and her brother both died, not seeing justice for her. So finally, in September 2002, the police reopened Lynette's case following a cold case review and they looked at this tiny little piece of cellophane that had some blood on it that had been found near the body and this had the beginnings of DNA profile. The police then did some proper investigating and removed a skirting board and then they discovered under six layers of new paint, there was a spot of blood, which was the same as the one from the cellophane. Blood on the front door was also a match to this unknown man. And this was a match to the blood on Le- on Lynette's clothing as well. So at this point, I guess as well, they had a lot more technology. But at this point, then they really did look into it. So they did a mass DNA screening and they did searches of 140 police databases around the world They yielded nothing until what has been described as outstanding and painstaking detective work. An officer noticed a pattern in the profiles, a really rare DNA marker. So he had basically spent months scrutinising printouts from the national database, just sat there looking at them. How incredible is that? We saw that before, didn't we, with fingerprints? fingerprints, yeah. I can't remember what case it was, but Um, they, they spent... They oh, spent months, like literally, using their Jack. naked eye. Where's I th- Jack? Yeah, well, I did. I was thinking. Maybe I think that. it was that. Yeah, I think it was. That rings a bell. It's incredible, isn't it? So this police officer basically found a match, and then they had a partial match with this DNA to a fourteen-year-old boy who'd been arrested for joyriding in Cardiff. They then looked at this boy's older male relatives. They discovered a 38-year-old uncle and sort of put him under some surveillance. And when he was spotted buying large quantities of paracetamol, they kind of burst him um, and managed to stop him from overdosing. And when they kind of confronted him, he said, just for the record, I did kill Lynette White. I've been waiting for this for 15 years. Whatever happens, I deserved it. And I sincerely hope to die. How crazy is that? So they've been putting in the media that they were talking about this and then they burst in. I was going to say. Literally as he's about to overdose. So he must have known that they were potentially onto him. And I'd completely forgotten that this was in, I think you said, sort of like the early 2000s and 15 years later. So 15 years. Yeah, for 15 years, he's got away with this. And there must have been many times when he when he just thought I've definitely definitely got away with it, and then it goes back in into the press, and it says that a cold case team is looking at it, and he starts panicking. I, I kind of get it. Yeah, and they released that they had like this DNA match to somebody who was the nephew of somebody who was a suspect, and he would have just been like, "Shit, this this is this is catching up to me." So he was in a really bad state, but he was rushed to hospital, and he did survive. The real killer was a guy called Jeffrey Gaffour, who at the time of the murder had been living above a corner shop run by his sister and her husband three miles from the docks. He had cut ties with his entire family in the years following the murder. He'd blanked the murder from his memory. He lived a really reclusive life. And remarkably, after that, he only had one conviction, um, which was for assaulting a colleague in 1992. Unusually as well, Lynette's murder had been his first crime. He That's said, shocking. I know, isn't that absolutely mad? So he said that his recollection of what happened was dreamlike and fuzzy. He'd kind of lashed out at Lynette after changing his mind about having sex because he'd asked for his money back and she'd said no. On the 4th of July 2003, Gaffour pleaded guilty to the murder. He had acted alone. He apologised to the Cardiff Five for their ordeal. And for the first time in history, a miscarriage of justice had been solved by the conviction of the real killer. 
He was sentenced to life, so Gafur was given a 13-year tariff, the minimum that he had to serve before he could apply for parole. That was less than the tariffs given to two of the Cardiff three. Like, what that's the low, hell? 13 years, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I get that that's only when he's eligible to apply for parole, but technically he could be released after 13 years. Exactly. And that's nothing. In 2007, the four witnesses from the original trial were then charged with perjury. In 2008, three of the four people who helped convict the men, so Mark Gromick, Leanne Vilday and Angela Pesalia, they admitted that they had made up the whole thing. They said that they'd been harassed into lying by the police. They'd been threatened with being convicted of being the murderer themselves. Leanne was told that her baby son would be taken away and she was shown photographs of abused children in care. Angela and Mark were described as vulnerable and the judge said he accepted that they were seriously hounded, bullied, threatened, abused and manipulated by the police during a period of several months. Um, So this was as a result of which you felt compelled to agree to false accounts that they suggested to you. All three of them were jailed for 18 months each, but Paul Atkins was deemed unfit to stand trial. See, as much as me kind of saying good and that they're getting done for perjury, based on what you what we kind of know anyway, but how you've summarised what happened to them, that's kind of unfair that they were jailed for 18 months, or three of them were, when the judge has said that they he kind of accepted they'd been seriously hounded, bullied and threatened by the police in the months leading up to it. So It's a really it's weird one, like, isn't it? It's really, again, yeah. very bittersweet, like... <sighs> Yeah. They do deserve it because they did lie on the stand, but yeah. But also, but when you've got police coercing you, what what else are you going to do? And threatening yeah. to take your baby into care and stuff, and then showing you what happens to babies in care, some babies in care. Um, however, I do kind of get like with um, Gaffor, he could have gone on to murder many other sex workers in that area. Uh, because he was out for 15 years when he should have been locked up. I know he didn't, and that was his only major crime, but he th- their testimony could have enabled him to go free and and continue with with, uh, with those with more murders. This is it. And so whilst we can totally understand the reasons why they did lie, they still deserved, in my opinion, a punishment. It's it's just a really horrible thing to for them to have to go through but but that is the law i suppose and mm. that is justice and that's just um i just thought, i know you've got a bit more to come on to in a moment but just with with Gaffour, the the guy who did kill Lynette, i sort of that sounds quite plausible to me that he'd uh sort of met with her for sex he was paying her and then he kind of bottled it wanted his money back and just, I guess, flipped. But it was such a frenzied attack where he slit her throat and exposed her spinal bones or discs or whatever. He stabbed her 69 times. Her T-shirt looks like a colander. She's been stabbed that much. I just think, I just find that weird for a first murder. And also I find it weird that he didn't go on to commit any other serious crimes. It's really, really unique, isn't it? So yeah, unique. he's clearly got a temper because he, yeah. he's kind of assaulted a colleague. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I just think how he was able to keep a lid on it. Um, yeah, just fascinating. I don't know what the answers are, but it's not normal. We don't normally see that. We would see a number of murders building up to a frenzied attack like this and then it would carry on. Yeah. And it didn't. I do believe him when he says like it's all just a blur and everything because the witnesses saw this guy sobbing and looking disheveled and looking distressed and he was clutching his hand that had a cut you know outside he was shocked by what he had done and then he just kind of almost like punished himself for the rest of his life living this reclusive life where he didn't mm. have his family in no way shape or form is that good enough because he shouldn't you know these men shouldn't have been in prison he should have been in prison but you can see that this weird. It is so weird that this was his mm. one and only crime, and I mean, yet it was be so clear, so brutal. Yeah, there's got to be a clear hatred of women, deep rooted in his background, to do what he did. There must have been, but 
he did plead guilty so there's not really been any sort of investigation into anything else he told them what had happened and said well from you know from the second they burst in and he'd just taken all the paracetamol I did this and I deserve whatever happens to me so yeah and and I I kind of assumed for 15 years he's thinking I've got away with this actually based on what we know about him and him looking to take an overdose in the run-up to being arrested for this maybe he was looking over his shoulder for for the whole time for all of those 15 years worried that his his day was coming maybe maybe it was just a huge relief when they got him maybe it was something that tormented him for the rest of his life yeah So in 2004, the IPCC announced that they would be reinvestigating the South Wales Police. And finally, in April 2005, nine retired police officers were arrested for charges ranging from false imprisonment, conspiring to pervert the course of justice, misconduct in public office and a number of other charges. And a further 13 people were arrested in connection with the evidence and the information that they had provided in 1988, which had incriminated the three convicted men. By November 2005, over 30 arrests had been made. So 19 of these were serving or retired police officers, including one inspector. Eventually, it came to court. So eight retired officers were in the dock. Um, Graham Muncher, Richard Powell, Thomas Page, Michael Daniels, Paul Jennings, Paul Stephen, Peter Greenwood and John Seaford. They all pleaded not guilty when charged with perverting the course of justice. And a trial of four other officers was due to begin the following year. And you'd be forgiven for thinking, finally, justice. But no, obviously not with this case, because the prosecution put forward this really strong case. The detectives had manipulated, moulded and even completely fabricated evidence that they had acted corruptly together and with other police officers to manufacture a case against the five men. And shockingly, despite the fact that they had their man, Gafford insisted he acted alone. He had never met any of the five men the police continued to say that the Cardiff Five were involved. Their theory was that there were two attacks. Gafford had stabbed Lynette, but not fatally. And somehow this five group of five had happened upon the scene and taken over. These men had been acquitted. They had received public and written apologies from two chief constables. There was no evidence that they were involved. Yet the police continued along this line And the three surviving men, so John Acty, Tony Paris and Stephen Miller, because they were the only ones who survived by this point, were then called to be witnesses, effectively put on trial for a second time. I I suppose the police knew that was bullshit, but their legal counsel was maybe encouraging them to, to kind of go with that because it was the only way that they might get off. Potentially. It's just, isn't it so frustrating? Yeah. So Tony Paris said it was happening all over again. I was called as a witness and I thought I'd be there for a few hours and then I'd go home. Four days I was there. We were being accused and tried all over again. Four days on the witness stand, Jesus. Yeah, and during cross-examination, John Acty said, you keep accusing me of being there. I was acquitted. It's them who fitted me up. I wasn't there. It seems like I'm on trial. It's awful. And after five months of evidence, in December 2011, the trial was abandoned. And the reasons for this are even more frustrating and rage-inducing as basically this whole case is. I'm going to try and simplify it, but so basically the defence had constantly raised concerns about non-disclosure by the prosecution team, namely certain documents hadn't been presented. The judge ordered the prosecution to produce these specific documents. At this point, they couldn't find four of them. An investigation concluded that the documents had been destroyed in 2010, so the prosecution had to admit that they couldn't proceed without them. The judge announced that a fair trial could not be guaranteed and abandoned the trial, and all the defendants were declared not guilty. And then a couple of weeks later, in January 2012, the missing documents were found in the office of DCS Coots, still in the original box that they'd been sent (laughs) from the IPCC. Oh, wow. This is mind-bendingly annoying. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So Satish Sakar was quoted as saying, "It is a very, very sad day for justice, as it suggests you cannot ever prosecute police officers successfully if you can't do so in a trial like this." In 2015, Home Secretary at the time Theresa May ordered an independent review, which was led by Richard Horwell QC. In his findings, he described the Cardiff Three convictions as 
one of the worst miscarriages of justice in our criminal justice system. And he said that there had been errors amounting to an embarrassment on a national scale, despite criticism that South Wales Police was put in charge of investigating its own officers. It is, however, widely acknowledged that Coots, the IPCC guy, did lead a competent and efficient investigation. So that's really good. And it was the human error side of dealing with about a million pages of evidence that went wrong. But Satish Sakar, I feel like really sums things up and is really eloquent because he also said what stands about the Cardiff Five is it's very rare for so much to go wrong in one case. Aspects of it you'll find in virtually every single miscarriage of justice. But what's rare is that it happened in this one case. That does sum it up really well. Mm. There's, yeah, you, you're going to get different aspects of what we've seen in, in your typical miscarriage of justice, but it's almost like everything that could have gone wrong here did go wrong. And the fact that it's 27 years later that Theresa May is, you know, it's still going on. So she's ordering this review. And that's 27 years on from Lynette, Lynette's murder. And she just really gets forgotten about, doesn't she, as the victim in all of this? Because it, there's so much more to it. And that's exactly it. There's so much more I could have discussed about this case. The men who were wrongly accused, convicted and incarcerated have really struggled with what happened ever since. Early deaths have been absolutely rife. But I wanted to finish with remembering Lynette as this beautiful young woman who loved romantic films, enjoyed music and just craved love. And a favourite song of hers was quoted as being Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, which I think is just who doesn't love that song. Yeah, that's a lovely little sort of end, isn't yeah. it? To remember Lynette as a, a real human being that enjoyed the things that so many of us enjoy and, and craved love like all of us do. Um, so I, I kind of like to picture her dancing around to that song. Yeah, and when you see pictures of her, she's got this beautiful, beautiful smile and you can imagine like you'd just be drawn in to go and dance as well. And what I have also done is when I put the pictures up on social media as kind of like an introduction to the case, one of the sections of the collage is Gafour next to the EFIT. Ah, okay. Have a look at that because it is him. It is identical. Like, it's ridiculous. There's also the five men, none of whom look anything like that EFIT at all. I'm just having a little peek at Have it. Have a little now. peek now and see what I I should have yeah. put the pictures into the document like I usually do, shouldn't I? But it's you shocking have done. because You've epic fail. He literally that is clearly him and it is clearly yeah. none of those five men. And the police had a number of independent witnesses about this man that was seen crouched yeah. in the doorway. And and you know how some of them described him as having that kind of like greasy hair, I think you said. Yeah. Um you can so see you can see that more in the real photo of him. He just looks like dirty and greasy. Um so yeah, it's like it is. It's a it, it's pretty much a dead ringer, isn't it? So there we go. Thank you for being patient with us guys because I know obviously this was supposed to be out on Wednesday and wasn't released until Friday. It wasn't just Mark though. My other half was poorly and then also my little one was poorly as well. We just had a bit of a a catalogue of things going wrong. Yeah, basically everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, a bit like this case. Um, but but it's worse for us, no. wasn't it? <laughs> it was, was much worse for us, yeah. I was going to say as well, you'd have thought that the ridiculously pregnant fat one would be the one with the issues, but no. <laughs> Bethan, you're definitely not fat. <laughs> it was um, just you couldn't just sleep on a sofa. I oh, fucking hell. Yeah, we were supposed to record Sunday morning and I was like, it was half eight in the morning and I was just like drifting in and out of consciousness. So I was just like, I can't do this. Um, so I'm 95% there now. So so yeah, as Bethan said, thank you for bearing with us. It's, it's only a couple of days late and we'll be back to our usual Wednesday next week. Um, in the meantime, do check out the show sponsor, beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk. Bethan and I have both bought stuff from there. It's an amazing company. There's so much uh, on the website, so do check it out. And don't forget to use code RED10 for 10% off your entire order. And also, if you want to uh, get access to a load of exclusive stuff, then head over to our Patreon page at Seeing Red podcast page or something like that um (laughs) i also i also wanted to um totally plug my book a little bit as well so i hope people will indulge me um due out this summer so um and the new millennium serial killer 
looking at the potential other crimes of Christopher Halliwell currently in production at the moment so as soon as we have a release date we will let you know but you can um, go and pre-order it at the moment so you can go to crimepublishingnetwork.com and you can pre-order your copy and you get a discount I think it's 40% or something it's a pretty decent discount you can pre-order your copy if you would like to so there's ebook and paperback versions available for pre-order and then it will be available in a hardback copy as well once it's officially released and it's um it's been a real labour of love, hasn't it? You've been working on it for a couple of years and you've got a, a foreword by Stephen Fulcher, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really, really exciting to have him kind of on board with things like this. And we will um we will probably use it or sort of feature that uh, as our book club, our Patreon book Ooh, club a bit later on in the year. I don't think I'll want to sit there and listen to you guys talk about it though, because I'll be like, oh my You're gonna gosh. have to. You're going to have to, yeah. Beth, and you have to come along to that. So, uh, so yeah, maybe we can get some signed copies together for that. Yeah, we definitely will. Um, we'll do some competitions when it's released as well yeah. for some signed copies. Cool. All right, then, guys. Well, thank you for listening to all of that. And we'll be back, as I said, next Wednesday. We'll, uh, we'll see you then. Take care. Bye. Bye.